Welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. Before we get started, take a moment to look around. You might notice that many people are getting older. Not you, not I, but those other people. Many Americans and people worldwide are living longer lives today. And in many ways, that's a great thing. But it does create a number of challenges at a variety of levels for communities, for societies, for government policy, and for individuals. The challenges include an increasing demand for childcare, a tight supply, and increased costs, the threats of isolation and loneliness and their impacts on health. But despite those and other challenges, which are broad and systemic, individuals still can craft a plan of action to really live lives with greater meaning, purpose, and connection. These are the important topics that are covered in the new book, The Measure of Our Age, Navigating Care, Safety, Money, and Meaning Later in Life. And the author, M.T. Connolly, is here today to take us through many of these topics. M.T. Connolly, a leading national expert on elder justice, was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work shaping research, policy, and practice. She was the founding head of DOJ's Elder Justice Initiative, architect of the Federal Elder Justice Act, and lead author of the Elder Justice Roadmap, setting priorities for the field. That work and her research for the measure of our age, navigating care, safety, money, and meaning later in life led her to co-design teams that provide more holistic, hopeful, and evidence-based services aimed to reduce trouble and enhance connection as we age, like the innovative RISE program. First pilot tested in Maine and now expanding elsewhere, RISE services are person-centered and can include support for caregivers and elders. MT grew up in Rochester, Minnesota in the north woods of Wisconsin, graduated from Stanford and Northeastern University School of Law, and she's an adjunct faculty at USC's Davis School of Gerontology, and she lives in Washington, D.C. As you listen to this conversation, keep in mind that the early portions of it will be focused on the larger, broader topics and challenges. But I hope you'll stick around for later in the conversation when the attention turns to what we can do as individuals and how to live lives of greater purpose, meaning, and connection. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So there are many challenges that come with longer lives. But first, what are some of the upsides that we should appreciate that maybe sometimes we take for granted? Well, I'm so glad you started there. But I think just to contextualize my answer, aging is this incredible blessing that we have more time, but we tend to underestimate long lives. And that means that we're often unprepared for the challenges, but that also that we miss out on some of the parts of aging that matter most and that we lack the knowledge we need to increase our odds of a better old age. So that's sort of my framework for looking at it. And in terms of the upsides, time, the sacred gift of time is the greatest upside of aging. A lot of people are deprived of that, that gift historically and in our own time. And then I think the other way that I think about the upsides is that 
what I've tried to do both in my writing and in my own life is to shift the frame of satisfaction and living from external to internal. And that we need to really find in ourselves and strive to find meaning in the time we have. And there are several different ways of doing that, but that that really what we pay attention to is what shapes our existence. And so if we take more control over that and give more thought to how we spend our time, we're likelier to be happier people and often also healthier people. Indeed. And you write in your book, The Measure of Our Age, about the longevity paradox, that there tends to be more focused on increased lifespans, but less on the consequences. What are the key issues that need to be addressed? Yeah, again, just to, to frame the longevity paradox, you know, we moved heaven and earth to extend our lifespans, right? That we, I mean, in 1900, Americans lived an average of 38 years. By 2000, it was about 78 years with differences by race, ethnicity, education, even political orientation, et cetera. But our lifespans are not matched by our healthy lifespans, which is to say that although the average lifespan is 78 years, the average healthy lifespan is about 66 years. And that means an awful lot of people are going to need, more people are going to need care than ever before. And we haven't really, as a culture, paid attention to how we're going to provide that care. We're going to receive the care. And so that is one huge aspect of aging and of the longevity paradox that deserves more attention. There are also a lot more financial challenges as we live longer and have more care needs. So there's a lot to pay attention to in terms of the finances. There's the cost of care. There's also the symbolic value of money. We want to leave a legacy or perhaps sometimes we want to say, I didn't agree with what you did. And so withhold a legacy. Sometimes there is just money becomes a stage on which a lot of emotional stuff can get played out. And then also in old age, we become more susceptible sometimes to financial scams and exploitation. And that's, uh, that can be a combination of things that can be that even though we're fully cognitively fine, we have uh, something of a decline in what's called financial capacity. Sometimes it's that we become more trusting. Sometimes it's that we want to help family members and they're squeezing us for money. It can be a whole combination of things. But in any event, there are increasing financial challenges that we don't aren't always that well that aware of and that we I think could protect against better both in our individual lives in our families and culturally. Then another challenge that I think comes out and is really part of the longevity paradox is that as we live longer lives we often encounter more philosophical and ethical balancing conundrum. And I think the the one that best is the one we know most about is what's called the autonomy safety balance. And car keys is one great example. When should you have the conversation about driving? When is there an ethical or public health obligation to take away the keys, for example? 
But those kinds of autonomy safety challenges come up in all sorts of ways. A lot of older people want to live alone when it might not be safe or when maybe the people who love them don't think it's safe. There's a great saying that somebody that we're both fans of, Kate Wilbur, who teaches at the USC School of Gerontology, Davis School of Gerontology, first made me aware of, which is that we want safety for the people we love, but autonomy for ourselves, which is a way of saying that often there are differing views of what, where to draw the line in autonomy safety questions. So for example, I might think I'm living, I'm perfectly fine to live alone. I don't want you, my kids, to get in the way of that. Whereas you, my kids might think she's going to fall or maybe she's leaving the gas on, or maybe she has too much stuff. So there are really complicated issues underlying those kinds of differences that individuals and families don't get anywhere close to enough help with in terms of how to navigate them in a respectful way, but also in a way where we know when the duty to respect somebody's autonomy shifts to a duty to protect their safety. And then finally, I think another sort of manifestation of the longevity paradox is that something that I refer to as we want to get old, but not be old. There's a lot of ageism in the culture, but also if you think about the norms of aging, as we grow older, often, often people, the choices in terms of where we live and how we live are that we either live isolated, often also lonely, or we live in communities that are segregated by age, really. And there are losses attached to both. And I think if we have communities like age-friendly communities is one example, which is a movement started by the World Health Organization to build communities that are more conducive to good lives for people of all generations and allow for both independent lives and also integration by age, which is something that has fallen away in our American culture. And I think without us even really noticing what a huge loss it is to not have more opportunities for intergenerational contact. Absolutely. And you mentioned autonomy and safety, and I'm wondering at least here in the U.S., independence is one of these core values. And I'm wondering, is that something that maybe creates problems and gets in our own way as we get older? Absolutely. You know, in a sense, independence is, as you point out, a fervently held cultural norm. And in a sense, you could say it's part of how the nation was created. But also, it's a myth. None of us is ever wholly independent. There's always some kind of interdependence with other people. And so if we embrace that we are interdependent with other human beings to greater and lesser degrees throughout life, I think maybe it's a little bit easier to consider how to organize what we want as we grow older. You know, when I <laughs> I found that when I have dinner with friends, that we often end up talking about where do we want to live? How do we want to live as we move toward old age? And I, for one, would like to live among people I care about. 
people of many different ages and in communities that are supportive in that way. So I think if we can embrace it as something that's good and think about it more in advance, like how do we want to be connected to other people? And the data are abundantly clear that connection is much better for our health. Isolation and loneliness are really bad for us. They're bad for our physical health. They're bad for our emotional health, you know, for our mental health. They also make us much more vulnerable to being abused, neglected, or exploited. So I think we need to pay much more attention to how to have a healthy interdependence with other people, especially as we grow older, and that it will redound to our benefit. And you mentioned the exploitation, and listeners heard your bio before we started talking, and your work on elder justice is certainly extensive. And there are so many different forms of elder abuse. One of them is the financial exploitation. When I was a student in the gerontology program at USC, we read in my first semester, first class, an astounding, astounding to me anyway, article in the New Yorker on the Belshi case in Las Vegas and Nevada. And so I later had their daughter, Julie, on the podcast to talk about it. And you noted one example of Kenny G's father. That got my attention because my nephew is a jazz saxophonist. And I came this close to sending him a cameo, happy birthday message from Kenny G. But his cousins, our daughters, saved him at the last minute. But it got my attention because the story was so sad to read in your book. And also, it was really about how the daughter of his primary caregiver stole much more than just money. What was the impact on the family of that episode? The, in the Kenny G case, as you point out, the Kenny G's father, a man named Mo Gorlick in Seattle, had a caregiver who he had trusted and who was really a, an important person in his life for a long time. And the caregiver's daughter, as Mo Gorlick got older and was in his mid-90s and even late 90s, he was starting to experience some cognitive decline. He had been a very successful businessman for years and had a lot of his identity, I think, in being a successful businessman. And she really used that to her advantage and got him an iPad and a computer and said, okay, we're going to go into business together. And he was what he thought was investing in her business and ended up investing $900,000 over the course of a year. And she did, you know, she used it on luxury items for herself, with cars, clothing, et cetera. And one of the effects of it, and actually a tactic that is used by many scammers is to drive a wedge between the person they're scamming and their family members saying, I'm the person who has your best interest in heart. Your kids don't, they just want the money for themselves, or they just want to isolate you, or they don't want you to do this fun, cool thing. And so this was one of the tactics that she drove a wedge between him and his adult children, one of whom was is the saxophonist Kenny G. And the relationship was never really the same. And the father, even though I think sometimes he experienced the intervention as you know, his kids trying to help him. Other times he experienced it as a deprivation. And so that was a really complicated and painful experience for that family because the relationship never was the same, even to the end of Mo Gorlick's life. And I was really struck. Um, Paige Ulrey, who's a prosecutor in King County, Washington, which is in Seattle, 
prosecuted the caregiver. And I sat in on the, the sentencing and I was really struck by how much damage the case did to the families, to the feelings and the ongoing legacy of loss and sadness. And actually, another interesting thing is that the Kenny G and his sister had very different approaches, which also, I think, is evidence of just how confusing this stuff is for families and how family members will often take very different approaches. And that, too, is an area where we don't have enough cultural awareness or education to really say, okay, you should do this, you should do that. How do you approach it? Another thing that was really striking to me about that case was. It's really apropos to some of the themes in your podcast is that for some people, retirement means a loss of an identity that was really important to them lifelong. And in our country, we haven't done a very good job to provide a menu of options after you retire, especially after if somebody has cognitive impairment, right? Like what gives people purpose in that phase of life? And so not having opportunities for more purposeful activity makes people much more vulnerable to scammers who can come in and say, I can offer you everything, anything, right? And so I think that is another way to think about having purposeful activity is as defensive against these kinds of the scams who really prey on people who are lonely, isolated, and in want of purposeful activity in life. There's one other thing about that case that I that's worth pointing out, actually, not about that case so much as about the Belshi case that you mentioned, which is that the article by Rachel Aviv in The New Yorker, which was about an exploitive guardianship, did a huge amount to raise awareness about the problems in guardianship or the potential problems. You know, so guardianship can use to be used as either a sword or a shield. And we saw that again in the Britney Spears case. But Really, guardianship has gotten very little public attention given how prevalent it is and how powerful it is. And we're just starting to see some guardianship reform, but that article did a huge amount to raise awareness. I was completely clueless until I read that article, and it really had just such a big impact to, to think of these things just to follow that, follow that case as it progressed. Amazing. Yeah. Great points. So. Given your background, the work you did at the Department of Justice, you've really taken on the fight here. But some people may say laws are important, but the, the language of law doesn't always get everything done. <laughs> Tell us about where you're at today and some other things you're doing to attack this problem from different perspectives. I started off a civil prosecutor at the Department of Justice. And there's that saying to, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. and so. To a lawyer, everything looked like a problem that the law could solve. And that wasn't right. Looking at the cases that we brought against nursing home chains that abused and neglected residents, we tried to use a fraud law called the Civil Fraud Act, the False Claims Act, to bring those kinds of cases. And those are important cases, but they don't necessarily change the systemic problems that lead to nursing homes being as unreliable as they are. It doesn't fix the staffing problems, which are endemic. And then I went and worked on the Elder Justice Act. And once again, it was a humbling <laughs> experience in that 
Although the law ended up passing with the Affordable Care Act, it didn't get any funding until 2015. And then only a pittance. And there was a brief, decent appropriation with COVID relief laws, but then it's gone back down to a pittance. And so I guess I had to sort of face that there was something bigger going on and something that the language of the law was not going to solve. We have a deeper, profound ambivalence about aging and a profound reluctance to look at what can go wrong in aging. And so I wanted to write about the issues. And at first, I wanted to understand them better. And then I wanted to write about them, which is why I wrote the book. And in the process, I learned a lot. And I followed the work of some people really closely. And one of the people whose work I followed was a guy named Ricker Hamilton, who works in Maine or worked in Maine. He's now retired. He was initially an adult protective services worker, which is an analog to child protective services for uh, vulnerable adults. And then he ended up rising to become the commissioner for health and human services there. So I went to Ricker and said, would you let us try to do things a new way? Because one of the lessons of working on the law was that I had worked at the 30,000 foot level and I wanted to try to use the lessons that I'd learned in writing the book to create and with a team of other colleagues, a new way to take on the problems we were seeing. And so Ricker let us do that. So we created a little a program in a nonprofit that worked along with the official responses that was better designed to do a couple of things. One is provide what's called a person-centered response, which is to ask people what's going on in your life and what do you want to see as changes? And so, for example, if it's a parent who has a child who has, for example, autism spectrum disorder, she wants help for that kid more than she wants help for herself, even if that adult child is causing trouble in her life and threatening her, perhaps. And so, what we were able to do, because generally the systems, are very binary. You can either help an older person or you can bring in law enforcement or prosecution for the the alleged abuser, but you can't help them with their relationship. And so what we wanted to do was really try to respond to what people wanted and then help them in the ways that they wanted help. So for example, to provide mental health and job counseling, try and get help people get housing, maybe provide a drug treatment, et cetera. And so we wanted to bring a more holistic response. And so we built a program. We tested it. We randomized the state of Maine. And so we tested it in two counties. And the results have been much better than we ever even dared to hope in terms of what the clients want. The clients have said, oh, my God, this is great. The workers in adult protective services and at the state level have also had extremely positive results and it reduced reinvestigations of cases by 50%. And the results were so good that in fact, the governor of Maine included this little program, which we call the RISE model. And there's a website, risemodel.org. She included the RISE model in the state budget this year and it recently passed so that it's now part of the healthy aging programming in Maine because the results were that good. And so the lessons that I take from it are first, ask people what they want. 
because people know what they want to need. And often it's help in a more holistic way, not just for themselves, but for the family system. And second of all, we need to have both the curiosity and the humility to ask the, about the impact of our work. Because unless we knew that it worked and that the results would be good, it would not now be part of the budget and part of the program. So we really need to be testing our best ideas to say, what's the impact before we say we want to spread it everywhere? And another bright spot I noticed in your book was the work that Ronald Long was doing when he was at Wells Fargo with Elder Client Services. That jumped out to me. I love that. Yes, Ron Long has done some really important pioneering work. And because he hired a gerontologist, actually, to say, okay, first he was thinking, how are we going to cultivate more older clients? And then that shifted to how do we better serve the older clients we have? in creating what has become an important model in the financial services industry in the Elder Services Initiative. So I'm really glad you raised that. You mentioned caregiving before, and how does our system of caregiving need to change? Such an important question. The economy runs on care. I think there's been an important shift in thinking about care to think about it as an infrastructure need. And so going back to what we were talking about before, we have, we're living longer lives or living deeper into old age. That means that tens of millions more people are going to need care. We have no clue how we're going to provide that care and our system is really not set up. One thing that many Americans are not aware of is that Medicare doesn't cover long-term care. Health insurance plans don't cover long-term care. And long-term care insurance is incredibly expensive and beyond the reach of many people. And often it doesn't cover what you need when you need it. So add to that, that a lot of people don't trust our facilities like nursing homes. And for good reason, after we saw what happened in the pandemic and given the staffing problems. So, and a lot of people can't afford having private caregivers come into the home. So the upshot is that 50 million people (laughs) are providing care and not just a little bit of care. It's an average of 24 hours a week over an average of four years. And 50 million people, 50 million caregivers, that's bigger than the population of California. The estimated value of that work is a half a trillion dollars. And the estimated loss in income to those caregivers is also a half a trillion dollars. Okay, so that's in this enormous shadow economy of people. Most people don't know that, right? They get very little credit or attention or help. We have very few caregiver support system. California has some caregiver resource centers that are both providing help to caregivers and are trying to collect data about what it is that caregivers most want and need. And that's some combination of education, of respite care, of help with legal questions, of help working with employers who are increasingly, the workforce is also increasingly trying to navigate elder care. There's even like AARP is arguing for tax credits for elder care providers, but we really need to do a much better job in recognizing the work and in supporting those caregivers. So that's one part of it in terms of what we need to do, how we need to reform our caregiving system. Another thing is that we need to pay and treat 
paid caregivers much better. This is also an enormous workforce. It's one of the fastest growing jobs, personal care providers, personal aides, home health aides, et cetera. And we don't treat them very well. We don't pay them very well. They're doing really hard work. Often, I mean, it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the economy. It has about has more than three times the, the injury rates of other kinds of work. And good jobs equal good care. I mean, that is shown again and again. So if we provide people with better jobs, and it's not just the pay, it's also how we treat people. Are there paths to advancement? Are there opportunities for education and supervision and training, all that sort of thing? That's another part of how our system of caregiving needs to change. We need to honor the important work of the people who are doing the jobs. We also need to do a better job in assuring that we have better facilities. So they're about, we have sort of uh, 13 to 15,000 nursing homes with about over a million people, 1.3, million people in nursing homes. Nursing homes in what are called CCRCs, Continuing Care Retirement Communities, together get more than $100 billion a year in public money, more than $181 million in overall, but a, more than $100 billion. And we don't really know how they spend it. There's a battle waging right now about what minimum staffing levels should be. And staffing is the most important factor in quality of care. And people forget that. But also, we don't know how we need much better stewardship over the federal and state monies, the public monies that are flowing to facilities, because we can't even answer that question. There's a lot of regulation of nursing homes, and there's a lot of dispute about the regulation. But when it comes to assisted living in group homes and some parts of CCRCs, there's very uneven regulation. Some get a lot. Some are very regulated in some states, and then other states, they're very lightly regulated. A lot of them are taking care of really, really sick people, and there are real questions of consumer protection. So, for example, a lot of people go in, they pay a lot of money, they think that they're set for life, and then suddenly they or their loved ones are, are being kicked out because either their care, their care needs exceed what the place can handle, or there are what are called behavioral problems, or they've run out of money and they've shifted to Medicaid and the place doesn't accept Medicaid. So we need better consumer protections when it comes to both the quality of care and the financial aspects of the care. And I think just overall, we need to elevate the visibility of the need for care and how we treat caregivers in terms of the overall care system. Appreciate all that. And you've really shared some notable statistics and insights that you know, weren't on my radar before reading your book. And so I've got to take a shot at seeing if I can get one more. <laughs> what would you say is the cost of ageism in our society today? A researcher at Yale named Becca Levy has done some work, as you know, has done research showing that people who hold the least ageist beliefs on average, live 7.5 years longer than people who hold the most ageist belief, most negative views of aging. Ageism leads to not just more negative feelings 
about a certain group of people, but also I believe paves the way for more abuse, neglect, and exploitation. If you don't think of somebody as being fully human, it's easier to take advantage of them. It's easier to justify bad treatment. And then I think one other aspect of this that we have not paid enough attention to is the nexus between the biases, like ageism that we hold in our hearts, you know, our negative feelings about aging and our feelings that it's our shame, denial, our fear about it, and how that translates into the culture and how that means, how that causes us to look away when it comes to our subpar long-term care system, for example, or not planning in terms of how to protect ourselves against financial exploitation and that sort of thing. So those sentiments that seem like sort of victimless crimes, like, oh yeah, I'm just feeling negatively about my future self, in fact, seep out into our culture and in our system so that they're less well prepared for us as an aging society. And these are obviously very big problems, very important, but your note to in connection to Becca Levy's research is it has individual impacts and things we can do something about. And toward the end of your book, you, you really sh- conclude the measure of our age with advice for individuals. And what are some key practices we should consider at the individual level? Yeah, this for me was a revelation in writing the book. You know, I didn't, I started off writing what I thought was an expose and it ended up being a more personal reflection, but also one where I was trying to provide information for readers that will be useful to them not so much as a silver bullet as you know there are no silver bullets everybody ages differently all families handle aging differently but more in terms of informing our approaches about what are both the perils and the opportunities and the gifts and to help train our attention on them better so i think at a at the broadest level starting conversations. I hope my book is a conversation starters in families, among friends, with policymakers, and also just in our own heads to say, what do I want? How do I want to basically live in this unprecedented time that other generations never had the benefit of? I think another key lesson is that caregiving should be a team sport, not a solo endeavor. And so how do we plan for that in advance? How do we start having those conversations? Because so much of our approach to aging is crisis-driven, like, oh, mom fell, come to the hospital, please, right? As opposed to saying, okay, how do we have the conversations about practical wishes and hopes? So for example, what kind of care do I want? Where do I want it? Who do I want to have help me make decisions about where to get the care or from whom versus who might be able to help me with my finances? Those might be very different people. How do you make a financial plan? I One financial planner called it writing a love letter to your family that you then update every year so that they know your wishes. And I thought that was a really lovely way to think about it because if your family knows what you want, you're taking some of the burden off of them. They don't have to be omniscient. And something happens, then they know what your wishes are. So I think that's a really important aspect of it. And having those conversations early, I think, raises everybody's awareness. Then there's sort of the health, the health aspects. 
of aging that I think get not enough attention. We know and research has shown that comprehensive geriatric care is really good for us. It extends our health and it extends our well-being and our independence. And yet, you know, last year, fewer than half of geriatric residency positions were filled. It's not an area of medicine or healthcare that's valued as much as it should be. And so I think if we realize better that there's real potential there in terms of improving our own well-being and helping us navigate some of the issues of aging, avoiding geriatric practices, and it's not just doctors, but geriatric practitioners might be social workers or nurse practitioners or physician assistants, et cetera, can really help us age better in all kinds of ways. So just being aware of that and seeking it out. And then finally, and this was for me, the both the most hopeful and the biggest revelation of writing the book was the opportunities for meaning making as we age. And, you know, it seems like this big amorphous thing. And actually, there are some very concrete steps we can take in our own lives to expand meaning that are, again, really good for us. You know, that a researcher named Steve Cole at the at UCLA has done some research on the, the health benefits at this, you know, in, to our bodies at a cellular level of volunteering, of doing something good for somebody else. And it has benefits akin to stopping smoking or getting exercise or having a good diet or sleep, getting good sleep focusing on having purposeful activity, doing something good for someone else has real, it has really profound potential benefits for our own health too, in addition to helping somebody else. So that is one aspect of meaning making as we age, just making sure that we're doing something that gives our lives purpose. And that's possible at any point in life, as I believe Ellen Langer, who you had on recently as her plant study showed too, back in the 1970s. Another aspect of meaning making is connection. So staying in touch with the people that we love and care about, but also just staying connected to other human beings in our reading groups or our gardening groups or our book clubs and whoever it is, whatever it is, not getting isolated, not getting lonely. And that is, as the authors of the good li- the book, The Good Life, say it's a commitment that we should focus on and reassess on an annual basis. Maybe when we're making our our New Year's resolution, say, who have I been in touch with that matters to me? And who can I stay in touch with? Who do I want to reach out to, to make sure that we keep those social networks vibrant in our lives? Then there's aging as an opportunity or, or the late chapters of life as being a good opportunity for expanded creativity and curiosity. And I think this is, we really underestimate old age in this respect, I think, because there is so much we can do. And a recent article by David Brooks in The Atlantic focusing on Encore time and focused on this as well. And I think that it's a spectacular time to do something new, to try something new to, that can also be tremendously enriching. Then there's the power of awe and transformation. And you know, we life is and time is transformation. We're always changing. But also, if we focus on 
what we think is beautiful, what is transcendent, that's different for everybody. It might be a night sky for somebody. For one person, it might be a religious practice. For another person, it might be meditation or a trip to the Grand Canyon. It's different for everybody, but it's feeling like we're part of something bigger, like this great flow of humanity, but also the universe. Like we're these tiny little specks in the universe. And ironically, really embracing that and feeling that can change our existence. And finally, there's the practice and gift of storytelling. As human beings, we have good things happen and we have hard things happen and we have tragic things happen to us. But how we find meaning in our lives is how we tell the stories of our lives, how we assemble all those bits, the good bits and the hard bits and the disappointing bits into something that resembles an arc. We are what the anthropologists call homo narens, right? That So how we make meaning of our time is how we tell the story of our lives. But then there's also telling the story to somebody else and somebody else asking for the story when there's a shared story. And one of the things that we don't do enough of is ask older people about their stories because there's a lot of wisdom and beauty and sometimes resilience and overcoming and all kinds of things to be learned from those stories. And it's something that Dave Isay is trying to accomplish with his story core and asking older people, older family members about their stories. So I think that there's huge potential in terms of both human connection and finding a greater meaning in our existence and in our in our relationships with others, in asking about and telling those stories. Such a great point. About a month and a half ago, I interviewed a woman in Philadelphia, Benita Cooper. She's an architect. She had moved to Philadelphia when she was 27. And and she had a meaningful conversation with her grandmother when she moved there. I think she was feeling a little lonely. But she ended up creating a project at lunchtime with the Senior Center in Philadelphia, really to have older people tell their stories of their lives. And so she subsequently created this organization, not not for profit called The Best Day of My Life So Far. And it's really now something that different organizations, you can bring it to your religious organization, your school, uh, community organizations, this whole program. And it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, but it really underscores what you were talking about in terms of the power of storytelling. But these are such great practical suggestions that all of us can do. So thank you so much for talking about the big issues in terms of elder justice and some of the societal level things, but also practical applications so we can all, all, all consider. Well, thanks for having me. These are such important conversations that you're having with a whole range of people. I'm grateful for them. Great to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Time for our takeaway segment. A few ideas to take today's conversation and put it into action for you following our talk with M.T. Connolly. Number one, shift the frame. I thought this was a very interesting point that she made early in the conversation. We were talking about the upsides of longer lives, and she discussed shifting the frame from external to internal, really looking at ways in which we can create more meaning in the time that we have. And what jumped out to me was her point about that comes from what we pay attention to. So step back, take a look. What are you paying attention to, and how can you shift the frame? 
Number two, make sure you want to get old, but also that you want to be old. And I think this really is a key point she made highlighting the research of Becca Levy at Yale about the outlook we have about aging really can have an impact on longer lives. So take a look at embracing what longer lives mean and what the upsides are for you. Does that mean changing some things about where you might want to live in retirement? She mentioned age-friendly communities, great movement, great statistics and analysis on the walkability of communities and other factors that they take a look at worth looking at. And her point of being open to intergenerational access to where you're living as opposed to age-segregated communities. Number three, embrace later life as a time to do something new and something creative. She talked about the article by David Brooks in The Atlantic recently on Encore Life. Great points. And I really echo what she said about looking at this as a really enriching time of life and one that can be transformative. So how can you tap into your curiosity and your creativity to make this, these next chapters your best? Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. My mission is to help you retire smarter by shedding some light on the non-financial side of planning for retirement. You can glance at all of our episodes across six seasons at our website, retirementwisdom.com.